verse 13 through 6, 21. <clears throat> These are the words of the living God. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priest and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed, man, the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priest who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout." So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day, they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who were with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the, de the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city." Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Let's pray together. 
Father, we thank you for this awesome passage. Uh, There are so many uh, things here to dig into, and we pray that you uh, would give us minds that are attentive to your word today. Uh, God, that you would speak clearly to us, that you would help me to get out of the way, that your voice would be clear. God, that you would teach us the things that we need to know in this text so that we can better serve you today in the world under the new Joshua, our Lord, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so a lot has happened uh, since last time we were together. Um, That generation of Israelites that we talked about last week who were disobedient in the wilderness have perished. Um, And Israel has wandered for 40 years in the wilderness as a result of their rebellion. And an entire new generation of Israelites has now been uh, raised up, and they are the ones who are going to go in and inherit the promised land, along with the women and the children of the men who were killed from that previous generation that rebelled. Now, just before we move into the book of Joshua, uh, Moses is told by God to point uh, Joshua as his successor. Even Moses rebelled during the time that the people were in the wilderness during these 40 years, and he disobeyed God. And for that, he was told that he would be given a glimpse of the promised land, but he would not get to go in. He would die beforehand. So Joshua is appointed as Moses' successor. And the question at the beginning of the book of Joshua is, will God be with this Joshua in the same way that he was with Moses? And indeed, God proves that he was. Um, He actually takes Israel through the same process that he did with Moses here as they go into the promised land, but in reverse. It's interesting. We'll, we'll talk more about that in a second. Uh, up until this point in our story, it seems that the original promise that God gave to Israel before the Exodus is incomplete. Uh, God has brought Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea crossing, but they have not as of yet entered into the promised land because of the rebellion. So, The beginning of the book of Joshua uh, begins with another sea crossing. When they left Egypt, they went through a sea crossing, and when they go into the promised land, there is another sea crossing, but this time it is the Jordan River. So God is about to bring the original promise to fruition. Um, These two sea crossings, the Red Sea crossing and the Jordan River crossing, can be seen as bookends to one story. There are two bookends to one story. Story. As a matter of fact, it's as if these two sea crossings are two borders, two entrances into two different worlds. The one sea crossing takes them out of the old world of Egypt, and the other sea crossing brings them into the new world of Canaan. So in a sense, we can look at these two sea crossings as one. They are connected. And when we left off, we saw that there were some unbelieving spies who brought a, a bad report to the people, which caused the people to become fearful, and unbelieving. And as I said, this whole story happens in reverse. So Joshua begins with the sending in of spies. Some other spies are sent in. But this time they bring back a good report to the people. They say that the land is ours. We can go up and take it. The text reads, Surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands and all the inhabitants of the land, moreover, have melted away before us. Then the, um, the 
uh, people of Israel miraculously crossed through the Jordan River at the leadership of Joshua, just as they miraculously crossed through the Red Sea with the leadership of Moses. And as Joshua leads them through the Jordan River on dry ground, just as Moses led them through the Red Sea on dry ground, God exalts Joshua in the sight of the people, and in so doing, he proves that he is their new leader. Uh, The text says, On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And as I said, not only are these uh, events um, uh, given to us in reverse, the ones that I've just mentioned, but everything in between. So you have the sending in of the spies, the crossing of the river, then there's a memorial celebration, they have Passover again, the circumcision, and then they go in and destroy the city. So why do everything in reverse? This is the exact opposite of the way that they came out of Egypt. Well, because this is a new beginning. This is a new beginning for the people of Israel. The Exodus story starts with God destroying Egypt, and this story ends with God destroying Jericho. The destruction of Jericho is a new beginning for the people of Israel. They are now entering into the promised land that God promised to them, and they are going to begin to take it in whole. This is the beginning of a new destiny for the people of God with a new Moses as their leader named Joshua. Now, during the initial conquest, uh, we will see that God sets a precedence for how the people are to go about conquering. They are to conquer the lands that they conquer through the means that God has appointed. And to those who are around, this may seem foolish. These means may at times seem foolish and absurd. But nevertheless, these are the means through which God has determined to conquer their enemies. Let's look at that, Um, but start back up in uh, 13 of chapter 5. I want to look at that real quick. Verse 13, we read, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his, his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us, or are you for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I've come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Does that story sound familiar to anybody? This is the exact same way that God came to Moses before he sent him into Egypt to deliver the plagues that would destroy that city. Remember, God comes to Moses in the burning bush, and he says, take off your shoes, for you're standing on holy ground. And he does the same thing here with Joshua. Joshua is a new Moses. He is now the one who is going to lead the people to victory in the, in the new world that God is giving them. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its kings and mighty men of valor. Now, the city is shut up like this because of the people of Israel. But if you remember back when the the unbelieving spies gave their assessment before, they said the city was like a fortress, right? It was all closed up. There was no way that they could penetrate it, right? Right? So it's the same assessment here, but it's given by God, and God says, 
I'm giving the city to you. Yes, it's like a fortress, but now it's yours. Just do as I tell you. So here Joshua and the people are going to be faced with another test. Uh, Just as that wilderness generation uh, came up to the borders of the promised land and they saw the giants and they saw the fortified cities and they turned away in fear and unbelief, this generation is going to have to conquer those same fears all over again. And what does God tell them to do? In verses 3 through 21, God tells them, look, I want you to go and march around the city for seven days straight. For six days, you're going to march around the city, uh, and you're going, to, you're going to circle it only once, but on the seventh day, you will march around the city seven times in a row. And he has Israel organize their ranks in a very particular way. The Ark of God is going to be center stage in this march. Do you remember the Ark of God from a couple weeks ago? This was the box that had the Ten Commandments inside of it, and over the top was the mercy seat with these two cherubim, the angels with their wings spread out. So this Ark of God is going to be center stage, carried on two poles, and before the Ark of God, there are going to be seven priests who blow seven ram's horns. And in front of the Ark of God and these priests blowing the horns, there is going to be an army of fighting men. And then behind the Ark of God and the priest and the seven horns, there will be the rear guard. The priest, so this is uh, a liturgical warfare, uh, since the priest of God and God uh, go with Israel as they go out into battle. Uh, There's a certain order in which they are to do this. When we talk about liturgy, it's the order, the service of the people, the way that we go about doing it. and this, there's a certain order in which they are to do this, and they're instructed exactly on how they are to go about doing it. So as the liturgy is the work of the people, and we see that there are patterns in the Bible to how we are to go about worshiping God, um, that's a better definition of liturgy, um, so the people are to go out with the priest and with God, and they are to do all this work in a certain order. So what is this a picture of? Um, I want you to imagine for a moment that you're living in Jericho at this time, and you see these men uh, marching around the city like this with the Ark of God and the priests blowing the lambs, uh, ram's horns, and some of these people lived in the walls of the city, so they're like Rahab and her family, so they're looking out their windows down at these people as they are marching around like this. Now, what does it look like when a, and, and they're seeing the, uh, this whole thing, Um, But I want you to think for a moment what it looks like when a king comes on the scene. Uh, When a king comes on the scene, the red carpet is rolled out, the horns are blown, and the king comes in, right? So the same thing is happening here. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is marching around their city with his uh, people, proclaiming himself to be king, letting the inhabitants of Jericho know that he is about to take their city for himself. Now, something I want to point out before we move on is this piece at the end about Rahab and her family. Look at verse 17 of chapter 6. And the city and all that is in it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Some of you may remember the story when Joshua initially sends in the spies, Rahab takes them into her house and she acknowledges that uh, Yahweh is God. And then when the people of the city get wind that they are in her house, she hides them so that they're able to escape. 
And because of this, God says that Rahab and her house are going to be spared in the judgment that is to come. Now, when these people are marching around the city proclaiming Yahweh to be king during these six days, I'm going to posit that the people in the city had an opportunity to come out and join the ranks of Israel, come out from the city and be converted, as it were, and to follow Israel. Um, They had six days to do this, every opportunity to do so, but they refused. Now, moving on, another thing I want to highlight is the fact that the people were not to uh, to say a word during this entire time that they marched around the city. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, But Joshua commanded the people, You should not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. Look at verse 20. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great great shout, and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. These people are to quietly march around uh, the city of their enemies in silence, and they are to do this for six days in a row, one time each day. And you have to imagine that as they are going out there like this to march around uh, the city, this is a test of their faith. I mean, this city has an army in it, and they could come down over the top of the wall on top of the Israelites at any time. They could come behind them and sneak attack from the back. They could, they could ambush them in the front. But yet these people are still called to go out there by faith every day and march around this city for six days straight. And then every day they would go back to their campsite and they would have all day and all night to think about the fact that they were going to go out there and do this crazy thing all over again. And they do it for six days in a row and then on the seventh day they march around the city seven times in a row and the writer of the book of Hebrews says that they did this by faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 30 reads, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. It was an act of obedient faith that made this generation of Israelites willing to go in and take the city and to take it in the way that God had told them to do so. Again, they were, by faith, doing the things that God had told them to do, and as a result, God conquered their enemies. The text says, As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. This is the faithful amen, brothers and sisters. This is the cry that we shout after we do everything that God has told us to do. It was as if they shouted amen here at the very end, and God did just as He said He would. Brothers and sisters, God has chosen the most unlikely means to conquer the world. He's chosen to do this through some of the most unlikely means. Think about the story of the cross. People will say things like, how can this Jewish carpenter living 2,000 years ago in some obscure part of the world who was beaten and bludgeoned by the Romans and then hanged from a gibbet, how can this be the thing that transforms the world? But it does. People, People will say, 
You know, how can this man who died on a Roman cross in ancient Israel have anything to do with those of us who are living in 21st century America today? How can a man dying in seeming weakness at the hands of his enemies be the thing that overcomes the world? Brothers and sisters, on the cross, God has disarmed our enemies. He has reversed the curse of sin and death in the world, and He has destroyed evil. The cross is the greatest display of power that the world has ever seen. But yet when the world looks at it, it doesn't, it doesn't seem that way. It seems like weakness. It seems like foolishness. And it even seems absurd at times. But nevertheless, this is the means that God has determined that He is going to use to flip the world upside down. At the cross, everything is reversed. The cross is the place from which God is at work in the world now to make all things new. This is for us the new beginning that the people of Israel experienced as they went into uh, the promised land. And Jesus is our new leader. Jesus, in the Great Commission that we read this morning, He tells us, go and disciple all of the nations. The whole world, disciple it. And lo, I'm with you to the end of the day. He's going to be with us to enable us to do it. Jesus is our new leader. Jesus is the new Joshua. As a matter of fact, the name Jesus comes from the Hebrew name Joshua. And we too have been told in a sense that we are to go in and to devote the whole city to destruction. Jesus has given us the sword as well in the New Testament, but in the New Covenant it is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God by which we go out into the city and destroy the enemies of God. And when men come out of the city and they repent of their sins, they die and they become a new man in Jesus Christ. And those who refuse to repent, well, they are devoted to the final destruction. But nevertheless, everybody dies in the judgment, whether that is by identifying yourself with the death of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, or if that is along with the world that is going to perish in the lake of fire at the end. It is up to you. And when we go out and circle the city proclaiming the gospel of God, trumpeting it out, The walls come down. Now, that we understand this Joshua paradigm and how it fits into the Christian life, let's talk a little bit more about how God is still at work in the world today to turn it upside down through some of the most unlikely ways. What are some of the unlikely means through which God is determined to give us victory in the world? Well, we will mention too, we've already mentioned the preaching of the cross, which is folly to those who... Uh, hear it that are perishing, but yet it's the only means through which the world can be saved. But we will add to that list good works and worship, which are connected to the gospel. So first, good works. Jesus tells us, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know, sometimes it is through the most unlikely means that people are converted. When you're out there in the world working or uh, when you're in school or whatever the case may be, uh, you will find that you are confronted with opportunities to compromise, to cut corners, to do things that you're not supposed to do just because nobody else is looking, right? And your, your friends who are not Christians are more than glad to do these things. As a matter of fact, they will invite you to join them in them. But as you refuse to partake in these things... 
God is, you are saying something about the God that you worship and who you are. And over time, God will use those good things that you are doing to convict those people of the sins that they are committing and hopefully convert them to Christ. Uh, There will be other times in the world when people will badly mistreat you. Excuse me. Sometimes people will say things to verbally abuse you. Sometimes people will uh, take advantage of the situation that you are in together with them, and it is during those situations that Paul says you're to give them something to eat. Invite them out to lunch or uh, pay for their pay for their parking and continue to do it, and you will see that God will begin to use your good work as daggers in those in those people's hearts, and eventually, hopefully, convert them through it. But this is not the way that the world tells us to react, right? The world says that you are to get even, that you are to take vengeance, that you are to one-up them, that you are to say something more evil and do something more scandalous. But Jesus says, no, love them, and you will turn their world upside down. Out there in the world, when you're trying to get ahead, whether that be in your career or in your retirement or in the circle of friends, Uh, that you are running, uh, you will find that the world tells you that you should run over everybody else in order to get on top. That you've got to be the best. You've got to be the first and you can't be last. And you've got to take advantage of every situation that you're in. You've got to work real hard to get your face on the billboard and your name into the bright lights. And Jesus says, go and die. Go and die to yourself and be a servant to those other people. Make yourself the last in line. Give somebody else the opportunity to be great. Esteem the next person better than yourself. Try to do everything that you can to ensure that everybody around you is in the best possible position to receive blessing. Die to yourself so that the next man can live more. And this is how the world is transformed. It's by living a cross-centered life, by humbling yourself. It's through self-sacrificial service that Jesus is made much of. And when these things characterize your life and the world around you, the kingdom of God comes. Jesus says, even if you give somebody a drink of water in His name, you will not lose your reward. Even some of the smallest things that we do, some of the most significant things that we do, Uh, if we do them in the name of Jesus and for Jesus, things change. And you may not always see it. You may not see the fruit of your labors this side of eternity. You may not even see them until you get into glory. Uh, Paul said that he looked forward to the day when he would stand before the judgment seat of Christ and he would see the fruit of his labors. He would see those people in the churches that he planted and they would be his reward. Sometimes through the it's the little things that we do. Uh, you don't never know when you're gonna. You don't ever know when you're gonna have an impact on somebody's uh, life for the rest of their life with the little things you do. Uh, you don't ever know when something. You don't never know if some something that you do is gonna be followed up by somebody else, and that's going to have a lasting impact on their lives and on into eternity. You just don't know. Paul says, "I planted, Apollos watered, and God gives the increase." It is through the most improbable means. The most improbable means. 
And even, it, even if it doesn't seem like we're making an impact, even if, it, even if it may seem at times like we're doing the wrong thing, even if the world thinks that what we're doing is asinine, who cares? Because this is the way that God has told us to go about transforming the world. And it is through these most unlikely means that God will do it. And when we agree to do it in this way, we are shouting the amen as they did so long ago. We are saying that we agree with the way that God has told us to go about doing things, and as a result, everything changes. Finally, I want to mention our worship. I said uh, the preaching of the gospel, and we wanted to mention two other things, our good works and our worship. So what we're doing right now. Some of you... uh, some of you may come in here uh, week in and week out and say, well, here I am again to do my duty. <clears throat> here I am. And you, you come for the right reason. You come because God has commanded you to do so. But sometimes you, you, you feel like you're not getting anything out of it, right? You wonder if it makes any difference in your life. I mean, what, what we do every week here, week in and week out, in this little church, worshiping God, doing the things that we do, does it make any difference? Did it make any difference in the days of Joshua? Friends, it makes all the difference in the world. This is the means through which God is determined to conquer the world. And when we come in here faithfully week in and week out and worship God in the way that He has told us to do so, He does just that. This pattern that we follow in our worship service of covenant renewal is the one that we see from the beginning of the pages of Scripture till the end. And John, at the end of our Bibles, is called up into heaven and he is given a glimpse of what happens in heaven and on earth when we worship together. It's in Revelation chapter 5. John's called up into heaven just as we are called up here to worship every Sunday morning and he witnesses a divine worship service taking place in the heavenlies. And when the people of God confess their sins, when they pray the prayers, when they read the Scriptures, when the Word of God is preached, and when the sacraments are rightly administered, John sees judgment and salvation falling out upon the earth. When we do what we do right here every Sunday morning, God acts in the world. Did you know that? When we do this faithfully week in and week out in the way that God has told us to do so, We are saying amen. We are giving the shout. We are saying, be it done as you have said, O God, as they did on the seventh day so long ago. And the walls of the city fall down flat, just as they did then. When we we come in here and worship on Sunday morning, strongholds are destroyed in people's lives. When we come in here and we meet with God every week, we are strengthened and we are built up and He gives us Himself. And He gives us His good gifts. And He renews us. And He sends us out into the world to do whatever we do, wherever we are as renewed people. And when we meet with the people in the city, the walls come down and those people are renewed. So don't ever think that what we're doing in here is pointless. It's not. um, Even if sometimes it doesn't seem like it. Even if we can't see it. God is still at work in us and in our town to do Marvelous things. So we have seen that God works in the world through some of the most unlikely means. 
the Israelites in the days of Joshua were called to uh, march around a city by faith. And they had to believe every day that when they marched around that city, that that was going to be the means through which God would conquer the city. And they'd never gone about doing it like this before. Matter of fact, nobody in the world was going about conquering cities like this. But nevertheless, this was the way that God said he was going to do it. God has called us to obey the gospel, to live a cross-centered life, and it flies in the face of everything that the world will tell you, but it is the way that God has determined to conquer the world. And this means that sometimes you're going to be the odd man out. Sometimes um, you're going to wonder if you're doing the right thing. Sometimes people are going to think you're downright batty. Okay? But it is during those times that you need to lean in by faith and continue to do what God has said, knowing that it is through these most unlikely means that God will in due time triumph over the world. Let's pray together.